Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the shocking but not surprising ruling from our far-right Supreme Court and speak with a long-time activist for women's rights who believes the majority in this country, which has largely been apathetic and does not vote, is starting to be aroused into action. Joining us is Gloria Steinem, a writer, lecturer and feminist activist who in 1972 co-founded Ms. Magazine and remained one of its editors for 15 years. In 1968, she helped found New York Magazine, where she was a political columnist and wrote feature articles. Her books include the bestsellers Revolution from Within, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, and Moving Beyond Words, among others. The winner of numerous journalism and lifetime achievement awards, including receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama, her latest book is My Life on the Road, and she's also the subject of a biopic available at Amazon Prime, The Glorious. Then we'll look further into the consequences of Friday's ruling striking down Rowan Casey and speak with Jill Hasday, Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches constitutional law, family law, and legal history. She's the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law, and we'll discuss her article at the Washington Post on Roe, Alito cites a judge who treated women as witches and property. Then finally, we'll look further into the agenda of this radical Supreme Court, which is just starting to enact its reactionary plans to ban contraceptives, ban intimacy between same-sex couples, and ban same-sex marriage, along with deconstructing the administrative state, and speak with Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department, where he supervised work on security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Gloria Steinem, a writer, lecturer, and feminist activist who in 1972 co-founded Ms. Magazine and remained one of its editors for 15 years. In 1968, she helped found New York Magazine, where she was a political columnist and wrote feature articles. Her books include the bestsellers Revolution from Within, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, and Moving Beyond Words, among others. The winner of numerous journalism and Lifetime Achievement Awards, awards including receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. Her latest book is My Life on the Road, and she's also the subject of a biopic available at Amazon Prime, The Glorious. Welcome to Background Briefing. Gloria Steinem. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us, Gloria. And, and in one of your books, you start out in the in the opening chapter describing you as a young woman in London in the office of a of a doctor seeking an abortion. And of course, the doctor was a very kindly man who was risking his life, livelihood and going to jail. And you were faced with this terrible decision, and now it feels like, following what happened on Friday uh, with the striking down of abortion rights in this country, are we back to where, or are you back to where you were as a young woman in mm-hmm. London in what the 1950s? Uh, it's a little different here. I mean, in, in London in the 1950s, you could only get an abortion if two physicians said that it was necessary for your health. Uh, in this country, there are New York State, California, you know, uh, many other states uh, retain the right to abortion. So it's more geographical in this country. But the point is that our rights to, you know, if you don't have decision-making power 
over your own body, you're not living in a democracy. Well, that is, in effect, what happens in totalitarian and, and even a medieval society like Saudi Arabia, where you have the compact with the, mm-hmm. with the royal family, which is one family, the Al Saud family, and they have a compact with the Wahhabis, where the religious police control the people through their body, so they have no uh, <laughs> ability to have any, uh, any kind of a revolution. And it, it feels in many ways that, I mean, it, would sound, it sounds, sounds like a bit of a stretch, but I think that we are in a similar situation here. It's not so much uh, one family that controls our country, but in terms of uh, our judiciary, one person uh, literally appointed five of these six conservative judges, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, and he has basically achieved an extraordinary uh, amount of power, and he has, through the judicial crisis network that he runs, has been able to raise a quarter of a billion dollars from plutocrats like the Koch brothers to finance getting Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and and, and uh, Kavanaugh on the courts. So this is an amazing situation where you have a religious fundamentalist, a Opus Dei fringe ideologue, having the ability to literally shape the entire federal judiciary. It's not just the Supreme Court, but also the federal bench, where he... He has this list, and this is what's happening, and I can't believe that there's an, that we are in a country. But wait a minute, but Ian, Ian, that that it's not what you're saying is accurate, but also only to say that is to take away hope, uh, because if uh, more people had voted, and and therefore we did not have, you know, Trump appointed what three people who were on the court. Uh, the majority did not support him. He was largely elected because many people didn't vote. More than 60% of the country believes that it's a the right of the individual human being to decide our fate, including women, to decide whether we give birth or not. So uh, to explain it as you explain it is not wrong, but I think it disempowers us as voters not to understand that this wouldn't have happened if the if the bigger majority of us had voted. Well, that's true, but I guess my argument is that what we're up against is a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and religious fundamentalism, and we've got to take the gloves off and roll up our sleeves, and we simply have to get 60 Democrats elected to the United States Senate. Shouldn't that yes, be no, our goal? I, uh, Yes, of course. And our, our first of all, our goal is to vote. I mean, if if we don't vote, we don't exist in this country. And way too few. I believe that we have a lower voting rate than any any democracy in the world. Uh, so, you know, we we have to um, begin where we have the power to begin, which is the vote. On the other end of the spectrum is the fact that this Supreme Court ruling leaves the decision up to the states. And that means that the biggest states like California uh, and New York will not obey. So the, the right of a woman to make this decision remains in, you know, and I haven't counted heads, but I think in for the majority of Americans. And again, I'm speaking with Gloria Steinem, a writer, lecturer, and feminist activist who in 1972 co-founded Ms. Magazine and remained one of its editors for 15 years. In 1968, she helped found New York Magazine, where she was a political columnist and wrote feature articles. Her books include the bestsellers Revolution from Within, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, and Moving Beyond Words, among others. The winner of numerous journalism and lifetime achievement awards, including receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. Her latest book is My Life on the Road, and she also is the subject of a biopic available at Amazon Prime, The Glorious. Right, there are about well, 13 states already that have trigger laws, including, yes. including Wisconsin, whose abortion ban is now based on an 1849 ruling uh, or yeah. 1849 law. And, of course, the conservatives on, that dominate the Supreme Court operate on a doctrine of originalism, which means that 
the law is frozen in the 1780s. And I find that an extraordinary idea that you could have that intellectual window dressing for something something so patently absurd. So mm. is there also no, a need... Go ahead. It is ridiculous, but, but uh, <laughs> you know, the biggest foe uh, is hopelessness because hope is a form of planning. It tells you, you know, what you can do in a positive way. So we should remember that um, California, New York, the two biggest states, other states, you know, retain the right of a woman to make decisions over her own bodies, over her own body. We also uh, have networks of of uh, women who help other women uh, to gain access to an abortion and to other states. Uh, so you know, it's just if we, it's not that it's not that the doom of saying parts are not true, but if we only focus on them, we give up our possibilities uh, to to act. Uh, in a in a democratic way, and to understand we do have control over our own bodies. So we are then we have to mobilize against a kind of anti-majoritarianism, which is at the heart of the situation that that's led us to this tyranny of a self-righteous <clears throat> minority, and that. Well, it's it's true, and also it it, it helps to demystify it. For instance. Uh, when Hitler was elected, and he was elected, the first thing he did the following day was to padlock all the family planning clinics and declare abortion a crime against the state. I mean, this is this is the company these people are in. Right. Well, they, a woman, a Republican representative in Illinois, a Trump rally yesterday, talked about this ruling restoring white life. <laughs> As if, as if, as if life were, you know, possible to describe by shades. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. Um, yeah. No. I mean, we're. It, it, it's um, a function of not voting and, uh, enough, which is how Trump got in the White House in the first place. Not that he gives a damn about abortion. He doesn't. But uh, because his his was a uh, very right wing. Uh, support, then he rewarded with right-wing appointments. Indeed, that was the deal. That's why Pence was on the ticket. Yes. And there's an irony there, isn't it? He ends up literally <laughs> putting out a death warrant for his own vice president, hang Mike Pence, saying in private that Mike Pence des deserved to be hanged. So, uh, well, I, I would just like to, you know, as a New Yorker, <laughs> right. I would just like to say that uh, it, it really is a, a function of money in a campaign plus not voting that got Trump into the White House. He's a laughingstock in New York where he comes from. I mean, he's a guy you wouldn't even shake hands with. So, you know, his, we have to consider his path to the White House and and look at the deficiencies in our own activism, in our own voting that got him there. Right, but just on Thursday, New York got punished by this same Supreme Court. New York's 100-year-old gun rights, meaning that you couldn't carry guns in public, that was struck down by this court. So imagine what would have happened on January the 6th had this new Supreme Court law been in a, in play, that those people that stormed the Capitol would have been able to carry arms and use them, presumably, given the beating that the police took? I mean, it just makes you wonder what kind mm -hmm. of planet these characters are on, on the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, you know, there uh, we, we are in a state of change. Uh, I mean, for instance... This in the United States, the first generation of babies who are majority babies of color has has already been born. And the racist right wing is very aware of this and understands, you know, that um, the future is 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 not is not theirs. I mean, what does it matter what amount of melanin we have in our skin? It doesn't matter. All those adjectives like race and gender and class really have nothing to say about who we are 
as unique individuals. But for those uh, right-wingers who really believe in white supremacy, uh, I think this this generation that was the first to of babies that was the first to be majority babies of color was a um, uh, cause of activism. Well, there will be, of course, as a result of Friday's striking down Roe and Casey, there will be more unwanted children. And now the Southern Baptists, for example, are saying that they have got to start taking care of children and and these alternatives to Planned Parenthood, so-called clinics, offering, are going to start offering up diapers and, and used baby clothes. But who's going to take care of these children? There are already 410,000 American children in foster care. So what do you expect in terms of, of what's going to happen to all these unwanted children? Well, first... First, I think we have to focus on what we can do before that, and that is and what we are doing now, which is helping women to travel to other states where abortion is safe and legal. So, you know, I think it's important to focus on what we can do positively before we do anything else. Well, indeed, there are, are groups like RAP that literally they get referred to from clinics, and uh, I hope these clinics at least can stay open, even if they don't, can't provide abortions, and you can send money directly through RAP to provide bus yes, fares no, and thank stuff. You. Thank you for saying that, and also uh, there are differences in what's medically available, because now there is a pill which didn't exist in the past, right. so, so it's far far simpler. I mean, there is no, there is no excuse for what has happened, but I, I worry that people will say, woe is me, and throw up their hands and not understand that this is just a step, not a defeat. Not a defeat. No, and I, I feel as much as I'm outraged, I think that we can channel our rage and anger into, into positive activism, surely. Yes, yes, absolutely, because this is an issue everyone understands. I mean, it's, it's not something that has to be explained. Well, Gloria Steinem, I thank you so much for joining us here this morning. I appreciate well, I thank you, Ian, and it's great to hear your voice and know that uh, you are still uh, allowing facts and people who <laughs> to be heard on the <laughs> air, as you have been for so many years. I thank you. Well, thank you. My my quest to uh, develop a uh, fact-based community in post-truth America continues. <laughs> Good. Okay. All, All right. the best. Well, t- t- today, today we're talking coast to coast, so thank we're you. including the whole country. Okay, thank you. And again, I'm speaking with Gloria Steinem, a writer, lecturer, and feminist activist who in 1972 co-founded Ms. Magazine and remained one of its editors for 15 years. In 1968, she helped found New York Magazine, where she was a political columnist and wrote feature articles. Her books include the bestsellers Revolution from Within, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, and Moving Beyond Wars, among others. The winner of numerous Journalism and Lifetime Achievement Awards, including receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. Her latest book is My Life on the Road, and she's also the subject of a biopic available on Amazon Prime, The Glorious. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking further into the consequences of Friday's ruling striking down Roe and Casey. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now, Jill Hasday, who's a professor of law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches constitutional law, family law, and legal history. She's the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law. And she has an article in the Washington Post on Roe, Alito cites a judge who treated women as witches and property. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jill Hasday. Thanks for having me. So people are obviously across the country and around the world, as a matter of fact, are quite appalled at what's happening in America. They feel that the clock has been being turned back. But according to Justice Thomas, the clock could be turned back even more because he's talked about the need to revisit Griswold, Lawrence and Oberfeld. Griswold being about contraception, Lawrence being about sexual conduct with the same sex and Oberfeld being about gay marriage. So do you think we're at the beginning of a trial as opposed to the end of of a 50-year era? We're not. We're definitely not at an end point. Um, So let me just back up and explain a little bit. Uh, The court's decision overturning Roe, the majority central theory was that in deciding what liberty the Constitution protects, you go back to 1868 when the 14th Amendment is ratified, and you ask if a plaintiff had challenged this law then, had brought a constitutional challenge then, how would a court have responded? If a court would have said you have no constitutional argument in 1868, then the majority opinion written by Justice Alito says you have no successful constitutional argument now. Um, I think there's at least two problems with this argument. First, actually, uh, the common law that governs America for its first generations actually does not regulate abortion before quickening, which is when the woman first detects fetal movement, which can be as late as 25 weeks into pregnancy. So it's actually not the case that there's a long, consistent legal history of anti-abortion regulation in the United States. But second, who decided what the law and what the Constitution meant in 1868? Well, one thing they had in common is they were all men. Women were not equal citizens. They did not have any role in the legislature, etc. Alito's majority opinion says several times, don't worry about other precedents we have that are based on the idea that the 14th Amendment uh, liberty extends to these rights. Abortion is different because abortion implicates fetal life. So he says, don't worry about Obergefell, which says states can't prohibit same-sex marriage. Don't worry about Griswold, which says states can't criminalize access to uh, birth control. Um, As many uh, uh, people, including the Senate, pointed out, though, the logic of the majority opinion, which is that we ask, how would your claim have fared in 1868, also imperils all these other decisions. Suppose you had challenged the same-sex marriage prohibition in 1868. Well, you definitely would have lost. Similarly, if you would challenge the law criminalizing access to birth control. So it's not clear if the court is ultimately going to overturn those other precedents, but certainly they're in play now. And it's very routine for the court in deciding one case to say we're only deciding the case before us. But that doesn't mean that they're not setting uh, a mode of argument in motion that could have implications elsewhere. And as you said, uh, Justice Thomas in his concurrence explicitly says the idea that there's any substantive rights protected um, in the word liberty in the 14th Amendment is ridiculous, and we should get rid of all substantive due process, which would include the same-sex marriage case and access to uh, birth control cases. Um, Many people pointed out that one example he didn't give is uh, the Supreme Court decision striking down interracial marriage, um, which was decided as both race discrimination but also on the idea that you have a substantive right to marry. Well, that would affect his own marriage, wouldn't it? Right. That's the idea. He's married to a white woman, so maybe he didn't want to use that example. But in terms of the, I don't know what word to use to describe Alito's reasoning, except that doesn't make a lot of sense. He's saying here, and this is the most quoted piece of his, of his opinion, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. Well, it's his decision that is going to inflame debate already and deepen division. 
I mean, if, if he's talking about the last 50 years being divisive, just wait for the next, you know, year. I agree on that. So there's basically two parts of the majority opinion. One is this idea that the, uh, there's no constitutional limits on a state's ability to restrict abortion because there wouldn't have been constitutional limits in 1868. But the second thing he has to say is, why are we abandoning this precedent? The court often talks about the value of sticking with precedents for a variety of reasons. It's more consistent. People rely on what the law is. Also, the court looks very political. If just because of the membership has changed, all of a sudden it's a new constitutional interpretation. So he has this whole discussion of, well, why, why shouldn't we honor this precedent? And he says a variety of things. One of the things he says is, well, the old uh, decisions have proven unworkable. Look how much disagreement there was. Again, if that's the standard, no precedent is safe. There's always disagreement about anything the Supreme Court says. Um, another thing he says is women haven't relied. He says you can, the law should protect your reliance interests if you relied on a contract or a property claim, but women have no concrete reliance interests in being able to control their own reproductive rights. I don't find that convincing. If you think about what's more important to your life, being able to decide whether you have a baby strikes me as much more important and structuring your life than whether your $10 contract gets enforced. Um, but he has, as part of this idea that there, there's no problem with overruling the press, uh, with precedent here, he says, this is going to calm things down. And I think we've already seen that it's not. Um, why not? There's at least, I think, two reasons <laughs> One is overturning Roe is not the anti-abortion movement's final goal. As they've said many times, their ultimate per, uh, goal is what they call fetal personhood. In other words, having the Constitution recognize the idea that fetuses are people. So even if a state wanted to allow abortion, it couldn't. Um, and overturning Roe is just an endpoint. It's just a midpoint, not an endpoint. So there's going to be continuing controversy as the anti-abortion movement push, pushes this idea of fetal personhood. And there are little hints in the majority opinion along those lines where Alito suggests that fetuses might be human beings with full, full rights to life. Um, another reason it's going to be controversial is because there's about to be enormous interstate conflicts over abortion. So Texas bans abortion. Uh, New York doesn't. What if a woman in Texas... Uh, has a telehealth appointment with a New York doctor and gets medication abortion, you know, gets pills prescribed and they're mailed to Texas. Can Texas go after her or go after the New York doctor? What if she leaves her home in Texas, travels to New York for an abortion and comes back? Can Texas prosecute her on her return for murder? There's just going to be an enormous number of interstate uh, disputes that are going to be worked out. And no one really knows how all of those are going to be resolved, but it's going to be, there's going to be tremendous uncertainty and conflict. And again, I'm speaking with Jill Hasday, who is a professor of law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches constitutional law, family law, and legal history. And she's the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law. And she has an article in the Washington Post on Roe, Alito cites a judge who treated women as witches and property. So already the Attorney General Merrick Garland has said that states may not ban uh, mifepristone, the main chemical or the main drug in chemical abortions. So my fear would be, or my <laughs> expectation would be, that if this would be challenged, it would go to the Supreme Court and Garland would be overruled on the FDA. Right. We'll see. So Justice Kavanaugh has a concurrence, and he says in his concurrence that he supports the idea that there's a right to travel, which is there are cases suggesting there's a constitutional right to travel, but they're not. There's not a, a, a large number of them, and they're not that recent. But he, so he seems to think there's no constitutional problem with a woman leaving an anti-abortion state, going to a pro-choice state, coming back, that the anti-abortion state shouldn't be able to penalize her. But the majority opinion does not say that. So as you said, right, the federal government, which is now pro-choice, has, has said a variety of things, has, is going to pursue a variety of policies designed to increase access and for women in states that are banning abortion, but it's just not clear how that's going to work out. And obviously the current Supreme Court is pretty, I think it's fair to say, pretty hostile to abortion rights, which might, which might color how they think about these interstate conflicts. 
But the chemical abortions happened very early. But again, I'm struggling with the logic here because if, as Justice Thomas has indicated, that he wants to revisit contraception in Griswold, if you ban or restrict contraception, you make abortion more likely, don't you? Yes. So it's one thing that is interesting is the relationship between movements against abortion and against birth control. This is a long time ago, but if you think back to C. Edward Koop, who was the Surgeon General in the Reagan administration, he was very anti-abortion, as was Reagan by the time he became president, but he was very in favor of birth control, and he said exactly that. Most abortions are from unplanned pregnancies. If you want to reduce abortion, increase birth control, right? There'll be fewer uh, unplanned pregnancies. Um, And there's certainly some voices in the anti-abortion movement who are in favor of birth control, but over time, there's been more people who seem to oppose both abortion and birth control, which I agree, there's some tension there, because if you don't have access to birth control, there's going to be more unplanned pregnancies. Unplanned pregnancies are much more likely to end in abortion. So I'm not defending the logic, I'm just, you know, explaining. Well, the dissent, of course, and and frankly, the dissent in a lot of the recent opinions of coming down are usually very, very well-reasoned, eloquent, well-argued, beautifully written, etc. But it feels like it's falling on deaf ears. And just to quote some of the dissent, after today, young women will come of age with fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers had. And then talking about the issue which I'm sort of getting to here, Jill, is power, not reason, is the new currency of this court's decision-making. Neither law nor facts nor attitudes have provided any new reason to reach a different result than Roe and Casey did. All that has changed is this court. So that seems to be the heart of the matter, isn't it? That this is really, you can argue until you're blue in the face, but Thomas and Alito, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, they're just not listening. I think that's the point in the dissent that the majority should be most worried about. The Supreme Court doesn't have the power of the purse. They're not like Congress where they tax us. They don't have an army. They're not the executive. At the end of the day, all they have is their legitimacy, whether people believe in them. And I'll say that for years, I taught constitutional law like many other people. And one story I said was, the Supreme Court only has so much institutional capital. And in some cases, it spends it. And in some cases, it saves it because it knows that it can't spend, it, it can't ask too much. It has to have decisions that the people accept. One thing that's so striking about Dobbs is here's the court overturning Roe in one fell swoop. I have to say that before the oral argument in this case, I didn't think, and I think most law professors would have agreed with me, we didn't think Roe was going to be overturned right away. Maybe, you know, over 10 years, they'll slowly chip at it, but to do it all at once is just an enormous, as Chief Justice Roberts said in his concurrence, it's an enormous jolt to the legal system, and it really is a threat to the legitimacy of the court. So if I was the majority, that's the part of the dissent I would be most worried about. The other theme in the dissent is to talk about what denying women access to abortion actually means for women's lives. One of the things that's so striking about the majority is at one point Alito says, look, how could we possibly know what effect it'll have on women to deny them access to abortion? So we just won't consider that. I think he has to do that because he wants to sort of deny the suffering the opinion is going to cause. But um, the dissent really talks about that a great uh uh, length. And those are linked points. Why is the court, I think, threatening its own legitimacy in part because, you know, bans on abortion are very unpopular. That's not where a majority of people um, are. And it's because people understand that bans on abortions cause enormous suffering and even death to women. Well, some of the citations, of course, the, of uh, Alita's, uh, and uh, in fact, Lawrence Tribe is very angry at Alita for cherry picking his citations. And, of course, much has been made of, of Alito's citations of Sir Edward Cook writing in 1644. He was an English aristocrat who, who said a witch is, quote, a person who has conference with the devil and apparently had executed uh, at least two witches. So that's I not actually a... wrote, right. I actually wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that was focused on Sir Matthew Hale, 
who the majority opinion calls him great and eminent. He was an English judge in the 17th century. He presided over a witchcraft trial and sentenced two witches to death. Um, He warned that women who reported they had been raped were liars, and he defended the marital rape exception, the idea that a husband has a right to rape his wife. And one thing that's very striking about uh, the majority opinion is we had the unusual situation here where the majority opinion was leaked, right? So we all saw the draft, and there was enormous, you know, enormous number of criticisms, both large and small. The final opinion is basically exactly the same. There's brief references to the dissent and why they disagree with Chief Justice Roberts' concurrence, but basically it's the same. They just, they don't, they're confident in themselves and their own power, and they did not, they did not really change a sentence. So do you think that, as as I suggested in the beginning, uh, Jill, that uh, this is just the beginning of essentially government by uh, judiciary? I mean, my understanding, and I've talked to a number of legal scholars recently, they feel that this Supreme Court, in fact, is as outrageous as the gun decision was on Thursday and the, and the abortion decision was on Friday, that they're going to move along the lines of what Stephen Bannon described as deconstructing the administrative state with this so-called non-delegation doctrine, which would be quite radical. It would take away the government's expertise in OSHA, in EPA, in CDC. And by the way, this court has moved. They haven't ruled against EPA, but there's the expectation they will, and take away the EPA's ability to deal with uh, global warming, which by most accounts is the most dire threat that we as a species and our planet faces. So do you think this Supreme Court is about power, as the minority opinion suggested, and that they are just beginning to flex their power? No, it's hard to predict the future, but I will say that this court seems supremely confident about itself and is, again, back to this institutional capital point, is just pursuing these enormously aggressive decisions in so many areas at once. It's just so fast and furious. As you say, they're rolling back the idea that courts should defer to agency judgment. That's one of the most important ways the agent, uh, administrative state functions. So Congress passes a statute that says, we want clean air, but they don't actually lay out the details because Congress doesn't have the time or the expertise to decide exactly how many particles of pollutants can be in every you know, square mile of air. Then the scientists at the EPA decide exactly what the standard should be, and it changes over time as technology improves. It's, it's been the case for decades that essentially courts are deferential to the agencies because the agencies have the expertise, and how would courts know better you know, exactly what should the standard be? And the Supreme Court has move, is moving away from that very um, quickly. I'm personally pretty confident that we haven't seen the last of the Supreme Court. More is more is to come, and certainly in the abortion arena, more is to come. We are not in a stable endpoint. There's going to be enormous conflicts between pro-choice and anti-abortion states, particularly about interstate travel. And again, the anti-abortion movement, I think, is not happy with abortion banned in half the states. They want abortion banned in every state, so they're going to keep going. Well, Jill Hasday, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jill Hasday, who's a professor of law at the University of Minnesota, who teaches constitutional law, family law, and legal history, and she's the author of Family Law Reimagined and Intimate Lies and the Law. And she has an article in the Washington Post on Roe, Alito cites a judge who treated women as witches and property. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into the agenda of this radical Supreme Court, which is just starting to enact its reactionary plans. You and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby 
There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Greenberger. Thank you, Ian. So... It's extraordinary that in his majority decision, Samuel Alito talked about how divisive uh, Roe v. Wade has been. But the divisions in this country are just beginning. There's not, you know, what happened in the last 50 years is nothing compared to what is happening now. So it's a very odd sort of logic that's, that's coming out of, uh, out of this majority opinion. Uh, and the dissent from the uh, minority, the three liberal judges that are left, was pretty powerful and basically saying it's all about power, that power, not reason, is the new currency of this court's decision-making. So is this really just the beginning of what we could describe as government by judiciary, that this Supreme Court of ultra-conservatives or very conservatives are now about to flex their muscle even further. You've got uh, Clarence Thomas saying that he wants to move against contraception, intimate uh, sex between same-sex couples, and also gay marriage. So what's your sense, Michael? Are we just at the beginning of more and more radical rulings? I'm afraid that that is the case. Um, and any assurances that uh, are given in these decisions, uh, uh, it is difficult to put much faith in them because uh, you must remember that the Trump appointees, uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, when they were testifying to the Senate Judiciary Committee, they said that uh, Roe v. Wade was settled law and that uh, uh gave assurances to enough senators, especially Susan Collins of Maine, that they would not disrupt uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, which is 49 years uh, 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 settled law in the United States. In 1992, there was a very careful reexamination of Roe in the Casey case, and three Republican justices, Sandra Day O'Connor, Kennedy, uh, and one other, reaffirmed Roe and allowed it to sustain itself. So uh, anything that we're told uh, to give us some assurance that uh, a line has been drawn uh, and they they will go no further simply cannot be believed. And uh, I think that uh, it is incumbent on those of us who disagree with these opinions because they really are a reflection of raw political power uh, to be involved in regaining the political upper hand. And that starts with the midterm elections in November. Well, both Senator Manchin and Senator Susan Collins have complained that they feel that they were misled by both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. But that would indicate that this is, in fact, as the, as the dissent from the three liberal justices indicate, that this is really about power. There's certainly no intellectual consistency here is there it's just extraordinary to think that there's a doctrine of originalism or textualism i guess i don't know you can tell me whether they're what the differences are michael but the long and the short of it is that are we living under the kind of the tyranny of a kind of self-righteous minority who honestly believe that the only things that are constitutional are what happened in 1868 and that everything else is progress that's been made doesn't matter. We're just, you know, literally chiseled in stone. We're stuck with what life was like in 1868 as opposed to 2022. Well, uh, any assurances that we're uh, going to abide by what life was like in a certain historical period, I really are not worth very much. I mean, after all, Roe was a 49-year-old decision. 
And according to three of the justices who uh, overruled it uh, in their testimony to the Senate Judiciary, said it was settled law. Uh, in this New York uh, gun control decision, uh, where the court upset uh, the Sullivan Act, which was passed in 1911, uh, 110-year-old law uh, that uh, allowed New York State to permit uh, uh, dangerous weapons outside the home, uh, we're now told that was not enough historical background and uh, uh, the court moves the goalpost to look to, you know, the Wild West as to a standard of how uh, states should be able to control uh, dangerous weapons. Uh, you know, there's no consistency, I think, in fairness, there's no consistency here. And uh, uh, when one is left, when one looks at the array of decisions, to see that this is just what the six justices on the court want to do at any given point uh, in time. And, uh, you know, the assurance, for example, that overruling Roe will not affect uh, contraceptions or same-sex marriage or uh, things of that sort, I think are not worth anything. And I think we have to brace ourselves. I mean, again, in 1965, Connecticut uh, outlawed the use of contraception. Uh, and the, the Griswold case written by Justice Goldberg in 1965 said as a matter of uh, constitutional privacy protection, uh, the state should not tell individuals how to deal uh, with their uh, 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 private uh, matters. Uh, and, in, uh, and Thomas is very clear in his decisions that, you know, he's going to go after uh, contraception, same-sex marriage. Etc. Uh, that the uh, there's no hard line to what has been done, even though some of the other justices would like you to believe there is. Uh, we cannot be assured by anything that's told us by these six justices. And uh, again, this is political, and the only resolve for those of us who are unhappy and think these are wrong and anti-constitutional decisions is to throw ourselves. Uh, meaningfully into the political process, not only at the federal level, because at the state level is just as important. The decision on Friday uh, tries to assure us that uh, hard line has been drawn at uh, what the decision held, and, but and that we shouldn't be worried about contraceptions or same-sex marriage, et cetera, that uh, these justices won't go there. But Thomas is signaling clearly he wants to go there and the assurances given by these justices are the same assurances they gave the Senate Judiciary Committee when they were confirmed. Roe v. Wade was settled law. Three of these justices said that. And yet the first chance they get, they overturn Roe v. Wade, a 49-year-old president. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. And when President Biden signed the bipartisan gun safety bill on Saturday, he was asked whether the Supreme Court is a broken institution, and he replied, I think the Supreme Court has made some terrible decisions, but he doesn't seem to be uh, interested in what some people describe as packing the courts. So is there any other alternatives? I mean, can you get term limits on these justices? Is, is there anything that we can do? I mean, the only thing that really erodes their authority is what they're doing, but they still will hold on forever as long as they're alive, right? Well, that, as things stand now, that's right. But again, this all goes back to politics uh, right now. And the politics are what can a Democratic Senate, for example, do? Uh, the midterm elections threaten uh, the posture of the Democrats in the Senate. It's 50-50 now and the vice president breaks ties. Um, it is just very important that the Democrats hold on to that uh uh, Senate majority with uh, the vice president uh, voting to break ties. 
And uh, if, if in fact, these midterm elections can increase the majority in the Senate, uh, yes, things can be done to control the Supreme Court. You know, Roosevelt, uh, in the early New Deal, the Supreme Court undercut right and left much of the New Deal legislation. And uh, in 1936-37, he devised the so-called court-packing concept, and legislation was prepared uh, to uh, add justices to the court on some algorithmic method, depending on when justices turned 70. Uh, uh, There was the so-called switch in time that saved nine. Uh, Justice Roberts, a Republican justice from Pennsylvania, switched his vote in later New Deal decisions to uphold uh, the New Deal legislation, and therefore the court packing wasn't deemed to be necessary. And I must tell you in all candor, court packing historically uh, became a sort of a no-no. It's something that uh, liberal uh, jurisprudence looks down on. But I, I think one thing that has resulted from uh, Friday's decisions is that many people I know who were uh, active and politically or either as politicians or as policymakers are now, based on what happened Friday, they are turning back to court packing uh, or limits uh, not as uh, protective of uh, our rights would be limits on the terms of justices. I think court packing is the most obvious thing. I mean, after all, you've got to remember that George W. Bush uh, was not popularly elected. Donald Trump was not popularly elected. And I believe they have five of the nine justices on the court. Uh, Merrick Garland, uh, who was nominated by President Obama, was deprived of even a hearing uh, by the Senate Republicans. And uh, with a year left before the election, uh, he never got a hearing and uh, uh, the Democrats are deprived of uh, having the ability to put Merrick Garland on the court. So there's plenty of rational uh, thinking that can be used to say you've got too many of these justices who were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote. And uh, Merrick Garland was prevented uh, for one year from even having a hearing held and that uh, justices should be added to the court. That will take uh, Democratic control of Congress. Uh, That means we've got to hold the Senate and the House in the midterms. And one hopes that the reaction to what happened on Friday uh, is so dramatic from the Democratic side that there will be a renewed push and uh, a success in keeping the House and holding the Senate in the uh, in the midterms. And once that happens, uh, we can turn to uh, policies that will make the court uh, a, a court that more represents the American people. So, Michael, just in the last few minutes, you brought up the New Deal and, and how the Supreme Court was stopping FDR at the moment. The country was in terrible crisis with massive unemployment and poverty and starvation. And um, they were basically sticking to this doctrine, the non-delegation doctrine, which is now coming back. Stephen Bannon, former President Trump's strategist, has famously said that they want to deconstruct the administrative state. Well, they are going after it. I mean, as bad as the Roe, as bad as striking down Casey and Roe are, and in particular, the day before, Thursday, striking down the ability of blue states to have their own gun safety rules. In other words, states' rights don't apply when they're for guns, but states' rights now apply for a woman's uterus. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And frankly, had this ruling been in effect on January the 6th, all of those people that stormed the Capitol, many of them would have been armed with assault rifles, and God knows what kind of mayhem would have happened. So there's, there's just no logic to what's going on, but... I'm told by a lot of constitutional lawyers that this is just the beginning, that if they really go uh, full on into uh, basically government by judiciary with the non-delegation doctrine driving them, 
then you know the EPA will be out of business. It won't you know won't be able to regulate anything to stop global warming. They've already gone after OSHA and the CDC, and all government expertise will be overridden by these unelected judges. I think your point is very well taken. As bad as the cases were on Thursday and Friday of last week, uh, there are hints within the conservative jurisprudence of systemic changes in the way we govern ourselves that will result in even more dramatic injustice. Uh, the non-delegation doctrine was used twice by the Supreme Court in 1935, and the essential theory of that is that you, the Congress cannot delegate its legislative authority to administrative agencies. Uh, it was used twice in 35. Uh, in one instance, it was used in a way that was uh, arguably quite uh, proper. But your point is well taken. The doctrine, as enunciated by Steve Bannon, there's a Fifth Circuit case that attacks uh, uh, rulings by the Securities Exchange Commission. The doctrine, as enunciated by them, is that an administrative agency has no power to develop its own law because in doing so, it will take away the power of Congress, which is by the Constitution given only to Congress. Now, you don't have to be a thorough political scientist to know that administrative agencies are given a mission by Congress to fulfill certain objectives, but the expertise in carrying out those objectives require administrative expertise. So our administrative agencies in rulemaking and adjudications fill in the uh, rules in a more thorough manner. That's the way things have operated uh, forever, with maybe some exceptions in the anti-New Deal court in 1935. So yes, we're already seeing that. The Fifth Circuit took away or declared invalid anti-fraud activity by the SEC. And if the Bannon, Gorsuch, and Gorsuch, by the way, is also uh, given hints that he would adopt the non-delegation doctrine, it essentially would tie all administrative agencies in knots, and they would not be able to act if that doctrine finds its way into Supreme Court jurisprudence. And there are enough evidences of that happening right now uh, that we should be worried. The other thing systemically that is worrisome is the court is giving hints that if state redistricting of congressional uh, uh, districts uh, is challenged, that the only party that can challenge that are the legislators themselves, not the state attorney general, not private citizens, that legislators who create the inequities in the congressional district would have the only standing in court to challenge that. And we see across the country making voting so hard that if the average person cannot go into court to challenge that, that is going to be a fundamentally damaging, uh, fundamentally damaging to the democracy. Well, Michael Greenberger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Nice to be here, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Justice Department, where he supervised work on security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here I'm not